Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Bruno Massange. Bruno is the author of History Has Begun. Bruno, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure, Eric. So, Bruno, by way of introduction, before we get into the book, why don't you trace your intellectual history uh, a bit? The question I like to ask is, you know, over the last decade plus, what is sort of the the threads that you've kept pulling or the questions you've kept asking? How do you sort of make sense and, and trace your intellectual history looking backwards? Right. Um, it, it's maybe not, not your typical intellectual history. I've always been a bit of a, of a polymath, but my, my PhD is in political philosophy, political theory, political thought. And I think you can still see that in, in many parts of my books. Uh, that's sort of my default mode. Uh, I always go back to that. Um, whether I'm talking about uh, China uh, or contemporary America, or even technology, I do uh, rely on on certain concepts that you learn as a political thinker. Uh, and someone was my case uh, twenty years ago when I was in grad school. I was really fascinated by the history of political thought, and and I still am. I don't read that much days, but I still am fascinated by you know those intellectual giants like uh, Hobbes, Machiavelli, or Plato, Aristotle. Uh, the liberal thinkers, um, and I acquired a certain way of looking at history that I think is different from people who deal with political or cultural history. If you're dealing with the history of political thought, you really see it as a succession of uh, revolutions. I think it would be the same with the history of science. Uh, so the idea that you really have these paradigm shifts uh, it's very clear in the history of science, but perhaps even clearer in the history of political thought. You know, before Thomas Hart, people thought about politics in a completely different way. And so I think that you can see that in my uh, work. Um, I'm always very attracted by uh, how things change, uh, how novelty is introduced in the world, uh, how um, the past suddenly uh, becomes uh, unintelligible, actually, and you enter a completely different paradigm. Let's make it a bit, a bit more concrete. So how does someone with, with the frameworks that you've learned look at, because you brought up China in your book on it, uh, say China differently than, than someone who um, you know, has approached it more casually and less, less academically? Right. So I think that sort of my intellectual history, where I come from originally, does play a role, but it's not the only factor. I've also been quite interested in the idea that you should inject your theoretical reflections with a lot of on-the-ground experience. And by that, I don't mean, you know, political experience or uh, experience in an international organization. I mean really going into daily life in a certain country and trying to immerse yourself in it. Uh, look around, try to see how things are different, uh, and then build your concepts on top of that and, and try to build your theories on top of that. So that's something I did in my first book very deliberately. So when I turned to China, I think my background in political thought does teach me that uh, probably we're going to find a completely different universe in China, different ways of thinking, uh, different political civilization. 
that has been uh, built from the ground up. And then uh, I also like to, in a way, by disorienting oneself, by getting rid of the assumptions that you have if you're coming from a Western country and looking at China. Uh, and that I, I, I did a lot, particularly my first book through, through traveling. You know, I, I went on a six-month journey uh, through uh, uh, Central Asia, Russia, China, uh, so that you can, in a way, uh, eliminate the, these assumptions, these presuppositions that everyone always has and start to look at things in a, in a fresher, more natural way, uh, as if you're starting anew and you're starting to think anew without presuppositions. So I think those, those two elements are important. Um, don't assume that this political world is the same as the West uh, and then try to experience it from the ground up, not from the offices of a think tank, uh, not from the university. You know, this sometimes may come across as uh, slightly arrogant from an intellectual point of view, but I think it's just the way it is. I, I don't understand how someone who has spent uh, his or her whole life in a think tank or a university can write a book about China or Africa, uh, or even, in, in a way, a, a book about America, although that would be easy if you're in an office in, in America and watching American television. But it just seems to me almost inconceivable because essentially you'll end up writing a book about uh, university departments. That's what you know. Yeah. That's how you react to things. How can someone write about political ambition where the only political ambition you've ever been exposed to is the ambition to uh, chair a, a, a university department. Um, it just doesn't work that way. So I feel very strongly about that as well. And it's obviously the reason I ended up not pursuing an academic career because I thought it would not be conducive to um, really understanding the world as it is, which is difficult enough, but it is really impossible if you're doing it from a university or a think tank. Yeah. In your in, in your first book, the, the Dawn of Eurasia, were, were you trying to say that uh, the distinction between Europe and Asia was sort of disappearing, or that they were converging, or or talk, talk about what you were trying to you know, uh, achieve in, in that book? Or, or, or right. a number of things. Uh, it is true that I, I I thought, and increasingly so, as I started to write the book, that this distinction between Europe and Asia is much more important than people think it is. Uh, I think it's probably the critical political distinction of the last 500 years. Um, why? Uh, because the idea of an advanced, developed society that is then contrasted to a society that is static, um, underdeveloped, uh, is, is very critical to our way of thinking. And it's very critical to people writing in the 17th, 18th century. It's very critical to people like Fukuyama, and it's very critical to economists. It's really... Uh, cuts across uh, different uh, different fields uh, and is behind uh, many of the theories that we just assume are correct. Uh, and then when, when you turn to other distinctions that have been important, uh, you start to suspect that in the background, uh, it's always this distinction between, between Europe and Asia, uh, between modern societies and traditional societies, which might be another way to put it, not so different. Um, if you look at the Cold War, the West and the and the communist world, uh, certainly uh, it was almost overlapping with, with the old distinction between uh, Europe and, and Asia. The Bolsheviks were many times described as a, a horde of Asiatics. Uh, if you think about the distinction between Christianity and Islam, uh, the same would happen. And if you think about a distinction very common in, in the 19th century between the white races uh, and the non-white races, again, uh, you see that uh, sort of implicit uh, 
assumption that Europe is the center of the world and that Europe is the uh, vanguard of human development is there present as well. So that was, I think, from a philosophical, historical point of view, that distinction is very critical to the way we think. Uh, one might not think so, but I, I would uh, uh, be able to make the case that it's there, always present, uh, always in, in the shadow somehow. Uh, then if you look to the future, uh, it seemed to me, and I think that uh, thesis has, has survived well since the book, and I think will survive well, this is really where the action is. What shape will Eurasia as a, a whole have? Um, because we know, if we think about it, we know that the United States is going to be a very powerful country. We know that China is going to be a very powerful country. We know that the tensions between China and the United States will continue and deepen. So the big question really is, um, where is Europe going to fit? Where is India going to fit? Where is Russia going to fit? Uh, so the question today is, what shape do we give to Eurasia as a whole? What, what shape will the supercontinent have? And that's the question I tried to raise in the book more than actually trying to answer it, because in some respects, it may be too early to provide a definitive answer. But to ask the question and to identify the right question, that was the purpose of the book. Totally. And when you look back, you also wrote a book uh, on, on China in 2018. When you look back, you know, it's two years. Is there anything you've changed your mind on as a result of just thinking about it more or just because the facts on the ground have changed related to those books or sort of softened on? or Not, not really. I just, I just wrote a new preface for the paperback edition that is coming next month. Uh, and essentially, I went back to some of the main theses in that book. Uh, and I think they have been, to a considerable extent, confirmed by events since then. What the book essentially argued was that China and the Belt and Road Initiative um, is essentially trying to provide a new political and economic order for the globe as a whole. The Belt and Road Initiative is not an infrastructure project. It's a project uh, having to do with the global order, the global political and economic order. And I think that's been more and more evident uh, in the past two years. Uh, it's become more evident, I think, almost now the mainstream view that China is interested in overturning the existing order uh, and that China is actually interested in infusing the new political order with its own values. In a way, replicating what the United States did uh, 100, 120 years ago. Uh, I think that view is not quite common, but it wasn't uh, two years ago. And the book uh, made that point uh, very explicitly. Uh, actually, the, the subtitle of the book was... Uh, a Chinese world order, that uh, the Belt and Road is essentially a Chinese world order. What, what do you think people misunderstand about uh, China or what, what China is doing or, or don't fully appreciate or, or where, where do they get, get China wrong? I think this um, sort of understandable reaction, which is to think that the world that we have today is the world we're always going to have. Uh, there's a real skepticism about China's abilities and China's power. Uh, China's economic dynamism. Uh, I think uh, it's one of those cases where you really need to have experienced it first time to have lived in China for one, two, three, preferably even more uh, years. Uh, and then you realize that uh, what's happening there is, is, is very significant from a historical point of view. Uh, and that, uh, well, China is no longer imitating, copying, is no longer appropriating intellectual property from the West or not doing only that. Uh, it's still doing some of that, but it's doing much more. Uh, and that the country has uh, the fundamentals of political order, uh, that the country is uh, organized in a certain way, that um, 
there's a common purpose uh, and that uh, there's a level of legitimacy, political legitimacy that the regime provides, which is there. And so if you live in China, you really have to take what is happening there very seriously. Now, whether you agree or disagree, most people, I think, uh, most Europeans, most Americans uh, will, will be uh, troubled uh, and anxious about uh, those values that China is projecting. But that's a different question from the question of whether what is happening there is important and whether China is in fact as powerful as, and as dynamic as, uh, as I argue in the book. We shouldn't confuse the two questions. One can argue that, yes, uh, China really has created an economy that works, uh, that is competitive, and has a political regime that delivers a number of public goods. And uh, now one can disagree about the values that are being pursued by the regime, but that's a different question. Are you sympathetic with, uh, or do you resonate with Peter Zeihan's sort of description of China's prospects, which he seems is very, uh, you know, gloomy? <laughs> he says there, there's sort of dozens of different ways that they're going to implode, and if if the U.S. pulls out, there's really no hope for them. Right. So I haven't read his books, uh, and you know, don't don't interpret this in any way as uh, as, as dismissive of his work. It's just that I, I read relatively little these days focus on writing uh, and you know you get too distracted if you're reading too much so i essentially read what is necessary for for the projects i have but not too much outside of it but i i'm familiar with these views and it seems to me i'm a bit suspicious of this idea that you keep um, predicting china's collapse for next year and you do it over a period of 10 or 15 years it doesn't seem to me to be what social science should be about and uh the argument is not never very clear about exactly uh what is being what is being argued uh, to some extent it seems to me that the idea is well because china is very different from um, america and because we know america has uh, the best economy in the world and china by definition doesn't have that and then it and then it must be about to collapse the argument doesn't seem to me more sophisticated than that i'm, I'm sorry to say um, so we have to to dig deeper and in many cases um, the information the data is not accessible uh, in other cases uh, the Chinese uh, economy just works on such a different basis. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I keep hearing, for example, about how the numbers of GDP growth are falsified. That's not really the point. Um, the question is not whether the numbers are falsified, and I actually don't think they are. The question is that even the numbers mean something completely different in China. I think someone has made this point quite well is, is Michael Pett, is at um, the Tsinghua, uh, Carnegie Tsinghua Center in, in Beijing. GDP numbers in China are not an output of the economic system. They are an input of the political system. So one can be skeptical about how much of those numbers correspond to economic value being created. Uh, but the idea that those numbers represent the same that they represent in the West, and therefore they must be falsified because it's not possible to keep the, the numbers that high for, such a, for a period of decades, just reveals just a striking example of how people are not really uh, aware of how the Chinese economy works in a completely different way. And one could give you other examples about, for example, the possibility of a financial crisis. That's not really the point or the threat that Chinese authorities are worried with because state control of the Chinese economy is, of course, uh, of a different magnitude and, and different kind from what it is in the West. Totally. Let's get, it, let's get into the book. Uh, history has begun. It's hard not to you know, hear that title and then think of, uh, you know, Fukuyama's end of history. Talk about what, what you were trying to do there. T talk about how, how you see Fukuyama, where you see Fukuyama's sort of misunderstood or underappreciated. Well, I, 
I think, you know, Fukuyama wrote a very successful book, but there isn't uh, anything uh, particularly new in the book if you're coming as I am from uh, the, the point of view of, of the history of political thought. Uh, because, you know, as Fukuyama himself uh, recognizes, um, his ideas were defended in essentially the same form by people before him, particularly Alexander Kozhev, uh, writing in the 40s, in the 50s, in the 60s. Uh, but even before Kozhev, if you read the classics of liberal thought, uh, Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, even Rousseau, it's very obvious that what they're talking about is something like the end of history, because they're talking about the creation of a regime that solves the political problem once and for all. Something that Plato and Aristotle simply did not believe in, that, that the political problem could be solved once and for all. And that once the, the political problem is solved once and for all, what, if it's solved in one country, then the other countries will uh, slower or faster, in other cases, uh, adopt the same solution. So what Fukuyama is talking about uh, with the kind of the language of, of, the, of the 90s um, is, in fact, uh, part of the liberal tradition. So when we were talking about Fukuyama, whether he was right or wrong, we are much, making a much more fundamental judgment about whether modern liberalism is right or wrong that one can solve uh, the political problem and uh, whether this solution can become universal, which is something that, of course, John Locke, Thomas Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes also believed in. Now, in my book, I'm trying to argue that uh, uh, this problem has been reopened, that it's not very clear that the, the liberal solution is the final solution anymore, uh, and it's not very clear whether it can become a universal solution. There are different ways to think about this. Uh, and I think the two main ones are, well, first of all, is this solution universal? And this is where the question of China becomes uh, central. Uh, is China moving towards a liberal society? And of course, I think, uh, I haven't read uh, Fukuyama recently, but I think his, uh, his answer in the book is very clear that there's no other way, there's no other possibility that a society, if it wants to be a functional society, has to be a functional society along the lines of a liberal Western-style uh, political society. There simply is no other solution. And if you try another solution, you'll end up with uh, a society that is underdeveloped, uh, that is uh, static, uh, and that uh, eventually will have no way to compete with the uh, Western-style uh, liberal democracies. So that's one, that's one part of the solution, uh, whether China becomes a liberal society of that kind. And then the other side of the question is, uh, is, truly, is a liberal society truly a final response to the political problem? And that's the question of whether the United States, uh, in particular, seen as the vanguard of liberalism and modern liberalism, whether it's satisfied with that solution or whether it's looking for a new solution and a different one. So there are uh, two ways to look at this. Uh, uh, two main ways to look at this, to look at the Fukuyama question, let us say. One, uh, is China becoming like the West? Uh, and the second, is the West going to be the West forever? And those correspond essentially to, to my last two books. Uh, the, the, the book on China tries to answer the first question and the book on America tries to answer the, the second question. What are your answers? <laughs> let, 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 let's get into them. Right. So uh, my answers uh, predictably are that... Uh, well, China is not going to become like the West. And one, one can talk about why not. But, um, you know, fundamentally, the solution that one has adopted in the West is rather uh, circumscribed uh, historically and culturally. 
It comes from uh, a tradition in the West. Modern societies in the West uh, are transformations of what was there before. And so when you try to create a modern society in China, you're trying to transform what was there before. Uh, in the case of the West, it was Christianity, let us say. In the case of China, it's the Confucian tradition. So the the change that modern societies operate is going to result in a different product in China and in the West. And I think we see that. That's part of, of the explanation, but uh, one should also think about how, in the end, political societies strive to be original, strive to be sovereign. And so the idea that the society would be happy copying some other society and that China would be happy copying Western societies is, is just a, a non-starter, I think, for me and for Chinese authorities and for me as, a, as an observer. Uh, and then you have, of course, uh, all this is being done in a different period. All this is being done by different people. Uh, so it just uh, defies the imagination that you would end up with the same results in China that you ended up uh, in America 100 years ago. Uh, and that the two societies would essentially be the same. You know, once you think about it in these terms, I think you realize that all that is just very implausible uh, and that it's very difficult to believe in in that kind of narrative. Totally. And and so there, there's a belief that the West is, is, a, is a global culture exporter, particularly around sort of wokeness right now. Why do you not think that's the case? Or where do you disagree with people who who have that thesis? Well, I think the West is, is less of an exporter of, of the current fashions now than it was 50 or 100 years ago. So it's it's less likely that uh, wokeness is going to become a, a global project and a global trend than uh, ideas 50 or 100 years ago, simply because the West is less powerful. But I think there was already a problem even 50 or 100 years ago. And in many cases, what looked like soft power was in fact just hard power. Just the West happened to have more powerful weapons, and that really meant a lot. Uh, this thing started to change, I sometimes think, with, with nuclear weapons, and particularly once uh, China and, and the Soviet Union acquired nuclear weapons, uh, the West's military superiority, which has been at, at the core of world politics for two or three centuries, uh, disappeared overnight. Uh, but there's also the economic question, the fact that other countries and other parts of the world have become very proficient at economic development, economic growth. So all that makes it more difficult, but it was always difficult. And if we turn, let us say, to wokeness, I just don't see it. Uh, I know this is a, a powerful argument, particularly my friends in in the Valley talk a, a lot about this, um, about the idea that there's a kind of a, a global movement towards wokeness. And if you're not particularly favorable to wokeness, then you get worried because there's no way to escape it. I don't see that at all in my in my travels and in my contacts. Um, many parts of the world, this is simply not a matter of any interest or knowledge uh, that in India or, or China, this is just uh, uh, almost outside the realm of, of even speculation. In Europe, uh, there's more contact, obviously, there's more, there's a network that's established and it's in place. Uh, but certainly in continental Europe, I don't see the attraction of that. And even in the United Kingdom, where you do see a little bit of uh, communication uh, people who are pursuing professional opportunities are uh, often interested in the media in America or the universities in America, uh, and they do try to mimic some of the ideas coming from there. Uh, but even in the United Kingdom, if you actually talk to, let us say, the leaders of Black Lives Matter, uh, they, you know, they may share the name, 
which in some cases is a matter of convenience, but their tradition is different. They go back to uh, reflections about the British Empire, reflections about the question of race in British history, uh, reflections about immigration in the United Kingdom today, which is very different from uh, the, the immigration experience in the U.S., even in terms of the racial composition. Uh, and so it's, a, it's like an entirely different debate, and nothing is being imported, nothing is being adopted, nothing is being copied in Europe, uh, uh, nothing that comes from the U.S., do cultural figures like LeBron James or the NBA or organizations that are, you know, Nike that are sort of, you know, signing Colin Kaepernick and stuff like that, like, do they not have global influence on, on culture and, you know, inspire, you know, millions of people to, to follow sort of the, the views of, of those people? Uh, to, to some extent, uh, obviously these are, these are global figures. Uh, we'll have some figures coming from, from the East soon enough. We already do. Uh, they're global figures, but when it comes to, to the politics of it, uh, obviously every now and then there will be a case in Europe that makes you think of, uh, of wokeness in the U.S. But the question is, it's not really central to the political experience in Europe. Uh, it's seen almost as something exotic. It's not shaping the way people live. Uh, in many cases, it's rather marginal and stays marginal, where in the U.S. it's really moving to the center of American politics and American culture. So I, I work for a firm in, in the United Kingdom, a consultancy firm. And uh, sometimes, you know, when I read the stories from America, it just doesn't seem, seems like a different planet, to, to be honest, because uh, the experience of working in the city in London is completely different. Um, in many respects, actually, it's still an old boys club, um, rather misogynistic, I'm afraid to say. And uh, uh, and it's um, uh, there's an attempt now to change some of those things, but it's clearly a different environment from the environment in the United States. And and some of the stories that come from the U.S. I think are still rather unthinkable in Europe. Uh, some of the most dramatic episodes from the last two three months, um, uh, those uh, uh, stories happening in the New York Times, for example, uh, it's it's quite unthinkable that they would happen in Europe, particularly in continental Europe. So they remain, and I think, as I argue in, in, the, in the most recent book, they are probably actually drifting apart the political and cultural environments in, in the two sides of the Atlantic. And, and the the question or the concern that some people have on the U.S., other people think this is overblown, but some people have is that, yes, there is a silent majority, or there might be a silent majority, but really the left is capturing the institutions in terms of like ideological conformity in um, universities, in, in media, in, in Hollywood and that that might be seeping over to institutions uh, elsewhere. And that's why you have people like, you know, Douglas Murray and, and um, you know, Andrew Doyle and other, other people in, your, in, in your, or John Anderson in Australia, like people who are, who are very concerned about this. If you're not concerned about this, what would, what, okay. when would you become concerned about this? No, I think, I think one should be concerned about what is happening in the United States. I, I just think that, the ability of these American ideas to to become uh, relevant outside the U.S. is is now quite limited, um, and I would I would argue that against Douglas Murray. I think some of these people are you know one can understand they are they are worried they they think that uh, the potential for the United Kingdom or Australia to go in the same direction is is, is great. Uh, they also are thinking about the past experiences where that was the case. Uh, I just don't think that's the case uh, anymore, really. Uh, and so one one should be worried about different things in Europe, and one, one can talk about them, and, and certainly in the UK. 
uh, and one should be worried about developments in the U.S., uh, which are obviously uh, very, in, in some cases, um, very troubling. Uh, what I argue in the book is that the U.S. is within a moment of radical transformation, and so things can go very wrong in these moments of radical transformation. Now, about um, the sort of the imperial bridge of ideas on the left, uh, I am slightly more skeptical. Because even though I think uh, some of the of, of the things that are happening, let us say, in the New York Times and, and other media outlets are uh, quite horrendous in terms of the how limiting and limited the outlook has become, uh, how um, uh, really conventional the, the, the thinking has become, to the point where there was this story that happened in The New Yorker. I think it was The New Yorker very recently. Uh, where a piece, I think, by G- Jill Lepore of, of Harvard uh, about police brutality included this unbelievable statistic that two-thirds of young people reaching emergency units in hospitals were there because of police violence. And the fact that no one in the New Yorker was able to detect that this simply was unthinkable, and that uh, uh, certainly there were many other causes for young people to go to an emergency unit in a hospital from traffic accidents to drug overdoses to um, violence, uh, but not from from police. So the fact that uh, no one at the New Yorker was able to detect that there was something fishy about this just reveals how how many of these ideas are now completely impervious to criticism. Now, I, I think one should bear in mind that um, this is perhaps a problem limited to certain institutions that are ossifying. Uh, and I don't quite see in America the danger that this is going to become a state regime applied to everyone. After all, there still are conservative media in the US and there are many different kinds of media outlets. And perhaps what will happen, I think has already happened, is that outlets like the New York Times will lose influence. Um, because also um, this uh, dogmatism um, and homogeneity ends up seeping into simply the quality of the journalism that you're making. And I don't think it's a coincidence that at the time when the New York Times has become so ideological and so dogmatic, it's also a time where you start to see an unusual number of uh, corrections, editorial corrections, and uh, really juvenile mistakes, uh, columns that are corrected three times in one day. If you're concerned about ideology, then you're necessarily not doing your job right because you, you don't even have the the bandwidth to do that. So perhaps what is happening is just some institutions are being replaced by others, and, and that's fine. Um, in fact, perhaps the problem was that we one assumed that some of these institutions were forever, had been around forever, and would last forever. So I don't see it as a dramatic threat to freedom in America. It may just be the case that uh, some institutions will be replaced by others and that this process of ossification is just limited to to certain places of American society and is not really a threat to American society as a whole. Certainly not now necessarily or not tomorrow. The question is if there is sort of this like total ideological conformity or uh, on sort of K through 12 in the university system, you know, what does this mean 10 years from now, you know, 15 years from now when they're all you know, running these media institutions? like Well, you know, looking from the outside, I think what is necessary is for um, people who are unhappy about this to also have the um, uh, entrepreneurship and, and creativity and boldness to help create new institutions. Um, and it's certainly the case. I agree with those people. And I've, I've seen this 
from inside that the universities in the U.S. are in a deep existential crisis. They just don't work anymore. They don't do what they're supposed to do. Uh, the research is terrible. Uh, 98% of the papers being produced are not downloaded a single time. And one has to wonder how so much money and so much effort is being spent to produce so little in terms of knowledge, um, in terms of debate, in terms of reflection, which should be the role of the university. But now the response to this certainly has to be about reforming the system. Uh, and some people think, well, one needs to create new, better universities. And other people, and I tend to agree with a lot, I would probably think, well, maybe this is one of those moments in history where we're actually going to have a, a much more radical transformation. And perhaps the university as such uh, uh, made sense in the last five, six centuries, and it doesn't make sense anymore. And we have to create something different. Uh, I think, you know, people like Peter Thiel have been certainly uh, moving in this direction. Um, what's the point of investing money in the university system? If uh, in the end you'll end up in a university similar to the ones you have now, perhaps something different has to be created, something closer to the real world. There's no reason that an 18-year-old cannot already be involved with, um, uh, with business, with, 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 uh, with developing networks, with trying to convince other people. And what we see, particularly in the tech world, is that uh, many 18-year-olds are being extraordinarily successful. Uh, and in, in some cases, they were lucky that they, uh, uh, that they dropped out or, or, uh, or, or were forced to drop out. Uh, but so this this should be an indication that one has to create new institutions uh, because it's obvious that some of these very young people still need a kind of a framework and still need a kind of an institutional framework to be successful. And perhaps the ones that were successful without it are exceptions. Uh, many others would need a framework, but the framework has to be different, has to be new. We have to be revolutionary about these things. And, and you know, look at, at, at the stories of some of the most important innovators today, they're successful despite uh, their university experience, not because of that. Uh, you know, that should really give us pause. Totally. I see one of the things that you're saying in this book that, you know, America creates its own realities, you know, writes its own stories. And, and so, you know, you know, can America rebuild itself? Where do you sort of see the, the fork in the road here in terms of like the choices that, that America can make or, or how, how you see it potentially playing out? Talk about that phenomenon a bit. Right. So um, I think, you know, um, look at America today. And the first question is something certainly new and something quite transformative and radical is happening. Things that were considered impossible five years ago now happen almost on a daily basis. Right. And, you know, obviously one example is, is Donald Trump's election. Uh, there are many others, but obviously this is an example. If you want to convince someone that what's happening in America is unusual from a historical point of view, he really should not have been elected. Uh, and he was. So what's happening in America is new. Now, the question is, is it a process of decline, collapse, uh, uh, disaggregation? Or is it the process of creation and renewal and rebirth? I think that's the first question one, one has to ask. Um, and in the book, I answer that it is a process of renewal and rebirth, uh, in part because I actually think there's a certain coherence to what is happening in America today, that it's not just chaos and disorder, that what is happening is a response to a specific problem in the history of politics and political thought, and it's a response to the uh, flaws with the liberal tradition and with liberal politics. So I see America as actually trying to respond to a problem and trying to improve 
on uh, on previous solutions. Um, it's almost a process of uh, creative destruction or, or almost technological innovation. Uh, you know, the previous platform didn't work, and one tries to create a better one. And the problem was, uh, in in my view, that um, liberal societies tend to neutralize human experience. Uh, in a liberal society, let us say, of the European kind today, it's not possible to have any intensely felt or extreme experiences. And those experiences actually are the experiences that give meaning to human life. So it's not possible to be uh, deeply uh, and piously religious anymore. Uh, it's not possible to have a kind of unbridled ambition that one reads about in history books or in Shakespeare plays. It's not possible to transform the world through technology. And all of those things are being conveyed to young people that all these things are impossible. Now, there's a reason why they're impossible, because they're very dangerous. Uh, they're very dangerous stuff. If you actually give free reign to individual ambition, you might end up with, um, with a dictator or a tyrant. And if you give free reign to technological innovation, you may end up with um, nuclear Armageddon uh, or a deadly pandemic, a lab-created pandemic or something else. Uh, or f radical forms of inequality. So there's a reason these extreme experiences have been neutralized and eliminated in liberal societies. But the cost is also very high if you do that um, in terms of the ability of societies to project themselves to the future and the ability of human beings to find satisfaction and fulfillment in their lives. What America has done, in my opinion, is actually to find a very ingenious solution because these are Extreme experiences are allowed, but they are allowed as a form of virtual reality. It's possible in America to be uh, a dictator in virtual reality. Who is the dictator in virtual reality? Well, I think Trump is, is a good example of those possibilities, and they can be explored further by someone else in the future. So you look uh, almost like a dictator, but you're not really a dictator, not in practice, not in reality. Uh, and religion, the same. Um, I saw a video the other day of uh, a lady that had been filmed outside a church, outside the church service, and the reporter asked her why she was not afraid to be infected by COVID in a very crowded church. And she said, I'm not afraid because I am covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, which is a, a, a response you might expect to hear in Iran and not so many other places, actually, perhaps in Iran or uh, in, in some parts of Egypt. But it's interesting because I don't think she was joking, but she also, of course, was not entirely serious. Um, if she was entirely serious, she would be trying to transform American society into a theocracy. Uh, but as a form, in the end, of, uh, of virtual reality, of experiencing these things, almost becoming convinced that they are real, becoming immersed in them. And so ambition, religion, but also technology are being experienced to a deeper extent and in a deeper measure in America than they are in Europe. It's the contrast that I draw in the book. But everything is kept uh, at, as, as, a, as a form of virtual reality. Nothing is taken to the point of actually being implemented in reality. And I think Donald Trump's presidency is a good example of that. He had an opportunity to impose a state of emergency with COVID and he never even thought about that. Um, because he's not really a dictator in the real world. He's a dictator in the virtual world, where these things are more about the experience than the reality of it. So America, in my view, has been trying to find 
a solution to a problem that had always been left unresolved with liberal societies. Um, what I try to do in the book, and I think this is a rather difficult thing to pull off, and I'm not entirely convinced that I, that I did pull it off, but what I'm trying to do in the book is to present America as breaking with liberalism, but actually taking history further and move it forward in the sense of creating something that is better than liberalism. Because there are many people today arguing that America is breaking with liberalism, but by going backwards in time uh, to all the forms of uh, authoritarianism or totalitarianism that we experienced in the past, a repetition of the past. And what I argue in the book is actually, well, perhaps liberalism is finished in America, but because something better has been created, a better version of, uh, of, of the liberal um, society that we had in the past. And then describe more... What is better than liberalism? Or what, what could that look like? What is the something better than liberalism? A society where there is more room to experiment with different possibilities, um, where there is less homogeneity, where in some parts of America you can have people that believe in the devil and believe in angels, and in other parts of America you can have people that are trying to get to Mars where you can have some newsrooms in America that feel like uh, Mao's China, and you can have some cities in America like Portland and Seattle that feel like Mao's China, and then you can have some parts of America that feel like uh, a uh, Latin American military um, uh, caudillo dictatorship, uh, at least at first glance, uh, where the whole country, in a way, is... A theme park with many different attractions um, where experiences that come from the past or from other parts of the world are replicated, but again, in a sort of ironic way. So the country starts to resemble Las Vegas, uh, importing the Eiffel Tower and, and the, uh, the, the Cairo pyramids and, and everything else. Uh, some people remarked recently that um, um, part of what is happening in America just feels like the Paris Commune of 1870 or the Cultural Revolution in China. But this is a rather remarkable society that is able to do this. Um, and it does offer, if this was understood better, and if this was embraced better, rather than criticized as dystopian uh, or dysfunctional, then the possibilities would be endless. Uh, and one could live in America and have access to a range of experience that is really not possible anywhere else. Because as we talked about, liberal societies tend to neutralize experiences. And then, of course, in Russia and Iran, you can experience political ambition and you can experience political danger and you can experience theocracy. But the cost of that is also very high. Uh, and no one, no one likes to actually be living the, the real thing, but everyone likes to experience the simulation of it. I see American society as offering us the simulation of everything, potentially the simulation of everything. And I don't think it's actually a coincidence um, if you look, let us say, at the tax sector, the tax sector in America is also, it seems to me, uh, in love with the idea of simulation. And this is not true just of uh, Oculus Quest. This is true of everything. If you look at uh, Facebook or Twitter, they are essentially alternate reality games. Uh, in the case of Twitter, almost a kind of a replication of the French Revolution where one enters Twitter in order to have a fight with someone else, in order to join a group, in order to denounce something, in order to uh, crucify someone who committed a political heresy, in order to really give free reign to our political or cultural passion in the cultural wars. 
And, and Twitter is essentially a virtual reality platform where these cultural wars can be fought. And you, you do feel like you're in the middle of, of, the, of the French Revolution, but virtually. That's why I love Twitter. But is it a coincidence that all over American society, you see evidence of this love with virtualism, which in a way would replace liberalism as a kind of reigning ideology? It's there telling um, tech entrepreneurs what to do next. It's there in, in American politics. Basically, the debate and the conflict now is between a form of virtual nationalism represented by Trump and um, and perhaps by Tim Cotton and others, and a form of um, Maoist revolution represented by the, by the woke left. And they actually seem to be able to live together, and they actually seem to, in a way, uh, profit from the other's existence because it's, it's what gives meaning and passion to the conflict, which is also another interesting thing about virtual experience is that, of course, you have to be immersed in it. You have to forget that it is unreal. And it's quite possible, of course, uh, in America today to forget that everything is unreal. And I think some of the people you quoted already, uh, what I would criticize uh, when looking at some of their, of their opinions is that it seems to me that they forgot this is all, this is all virtual, that America is not becoming Mao's China and it won't become Mao's China. And sometimes in the sort of the heat of the battle, you forget, and, uh, you forget about that and, and, and take these things uh, much too literally. Now, isn't it the case that actually the left over the past four years took Trump too literally as a fascist dictator? And uh, now I think perhaps the right will commit the same mistake by taking the woke left too literally as a, a Maoist revolution. But that this thing should not be taken literally, should be taken ironically. At what point would you take it literally? <laughs> like, you know, there, many laws are being changed to sort of redefine what, you know, discrimination. There was a sort of thing in Yale yesterday. Like there are real institutional, you know, things that are being changed. So I, I, I guess the thing I just asked right. you, at what, point, at what point would you worry? No, good question. So this is where I think actually one needs a little bit of, of theorizing and perhaps one needs new institutions uh, because this kind of form of virtualism where we can experience everything virtually. The institutions and the theories have to be in place to prevent sliding into, into reality, which is always the danger. Uh, I think we've seen many movies where the characters are inside a video game and then they find no way to get out of it, right? I remember good numbers of movies that I've seen where essentially this is the plot line. Or even The Matrix is a, a little bit like that. Um, so you have, to, you have to have a way to, to, to disconnect the game. Uh, you have to, to have a kill switch. I think the importance of the kill switch, this is really what you're asking about, uh, how do we prevent these things from actually becoming real? And some of the institutions that we already have are going to be very helpful. I think democracy is going to be very helpful for this purpose and some form of division of power uh, to prevent a, a kind of um, a sliding into, into reality where we, we lose track of the fact that this is not, uh, not, not really uh, the world we live in, but it is a simulation of some kind. And other institutions may have to be created. Uh, I think the work is only beginning. We need to create the appropriate institutions for this kind of new society, which is no longer a liberal society. The balance will have to be, uh, we have to, to, to leave enough room for uh, a high level of immersion. I think, you know, we have to, to redraw our political theories from scratch and even develop new values. So immersion, I think, is going to be a very important value for our societies. And we have to create the space for that. 
So let us say when the New York Times uh, op-ed editors uh, decide to publish an op-ed by Tim Cotton that goes against their strongly held views, there was a lot of shock on, on the right among conservatives that this happened. I wasn't particularly shocked because I think it might be a good idea for different institutions to be able to uh, create a high level of immersion in their own ideas. Uh, and if you're forced to include every kind of idea in your platform, let us say, then there's not going to be anything that you hold very dear or very sacred. So if the New York Times wants to live under a certain ideological orientation, that should be acceptable, provided that doesn't become the national orientation for everyone. Just in the same way that I would defend that religious people should be able, in some cases, to take their children out of the public schools after, after elementary school, after a, 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 few, a few years in school, so that those children are able to grow up in a religious environment and that they are able to develop strongly held religious views. Uh, and that we shouldn't expose everyone to everything, because then the value of immersion was going to be destroyed. Well, if I defend that in the case of the old order Amish or in case of, of, of some conservatives in the American South, then why, the, why doesn't the New York Times have the right to do the same? Provided that they don't then present themselves as being neutral, impartial. They have to sacrifice that, uh, but that's fine. If they're willing to sacrifice their image of being uh, of being the, the newspaper of record where every view can be published. Uh, if they want to become more of a political movement, they should be allowed to do that, of course. Um, and we should preserve this important element of immersion in deep uh, forms of life. But then the other value is um, the level of um, limiting these experiences and not allowing them to become real in the sense of becoming mandatory for everyone. After all, reality is what is true for everyone, what is mandatory for everyone. I think that's the uh, traditional definition of, of reality or objectivity. And uh, we want a society where uh, reality in this sense does not exist, where nothing is imposed on everyone else as inescapable, uh, as real. Uh, and so we also have to create the institutions to prevent this, to prevent a certain view from being imposed on everyone as the real, the true view. But if we start to think along these lines, then we realize there's actually something quite liberating about the idea of post-truth uh, or about the idea of not relying on facts to guide our politics. Uh, it might be a better world if we rely just on fantasy and not on facts to guide our politics, because, of course, the great thing about fantasy as opposed to facts is that everyone can have their own. Uh, and facts are the same for everyone. So there's something authoritarian about facts and something rather liberating about fantasy. But I genuinely believe much of the work is still to be done in terms of developing the theories, the institutions, even the emotional reactions to this new kind of society I'm trying to describe. I've, uh, I've never heard uh, that, that defense of postmodernism, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's creative. I, I, I see you in the book as, as sort of exploring and in, in, in someone trying to reconcile different tensions or talk about how they could be reconciled, you know, democracy and religion is one, you know, individualism, right. collectivism is another. And then also just sort of what you're talking about right now, modernity and, and post-modernity. Why don't you talk about, how, you know, anyone or all of them in terms of how you, how you try to reconcile them or how you see them potentially right. being reconciled. Let me say a little, let me say a little bit about religion. And then let me, let me suggest that actually, 
technology and religion are quite similar. That's one of, one of the ideas in the book that I'm I'm interested in 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 trying to defend. Uh, so there's obviously a conflict between religion and liberalism. There's thousands of books about this, uh, and thousands of books trying to reconcile the two, but thousands of books showing that there is a conflict. Because if you want to create a liberal society where individual freedom is the most important value, you're necessarily suspicious of religion because religion, at least the way it's, it was interpreted and the way it is still mostly interpreted in Europe, uh, is about uh, divine revelation. Uh, it's about God's commandments and it's about a certain idea of truth that is revealed from above and imposed on human beings. Now, there's obviously a conflict between religion thus understood and freedom and individual freedom, because you're either free to do what you want or you are uh, under the obligation to follow God's commands and to follow the revealed truth and has been revealed in sacred texts. So obviously there's a conflict between religion and, 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 and liberalism. This conflict has been resolved in different ways. For the most part, liberalism has won and religion had to adapt itself to liberalism. Religion was transformed essentially into a way of life uh, that has to fit under liberalism. Uh, religious uh, people had to renounce their ambition to actually set the truth for everyone else. Uh, and they had to become a different kind of, uh, of pious uh, religious um, personalities. Now, I think this is well understood and, and accepted, although, as I already argued, it's, it's different in America and, and there's more space in America for religious experience. Now, technology. Um, what I find quite interesting is that technology also ends up to be being in conflict with, with liberalism. And perhaps we didn't know that until very recently. Uh, but it's becoming more and more clear, and it's particularly clear in Europe, uh, just as because in Europe liberalism is much stronger than in America. You know, my argument is that liberalism is essentially dying in America. But because liberalism is very strong in Europe, you see the conflict with religion very acutely, and you see the conflict with technology also very clearly, uh, although that conflict with technology is also present in America. But what is the conflict? Well, um, liberalism is going to be concerned with individual freedom and is going to be concerned with the possibility that technology is going to limit individual freedom, um, image recognition, uh, AI, that they will perhaps create new forms of power that are incompatible with liberalism and with individual freedom. An argument not that different from the argument in the case of religion. Or perhaps technology is going to create radical forms of inequality, which are a threat to freedom because they will create a class of, of billionaires and they will create a class of uh, companies that, that have access to endless amounts of data and that they can have uh, a new, new kinds of control of our, our lives. Or perhaps technology will transform our lives so radically that you will even transform the shape of a liberal society, make it impossible for privacy to exist, make it impossible for certain levels of equality to exist, uh, make it impossible for political accountability to exist, make it impossible for facts and truth to exist. This is a debate about Facebook and disinformation and so on. It's now almost accepted by mainstream opinion uh, that Facebook is destroying democracy by spreading all these conspiracies and, and so on, making it impossible to have a public sphere in the old style where one discusses policies and facts. Now, 
this is also starting to be accepted, but it's quite a dramatic conclusion to 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 take. Um, if we conclude that liberalism is incompatible with technology, then we have to pick one among the two. And we also become more pessimistic about the future of liberalism, because if this is true, then it would mean essentially that other societies, non-liberal societies, would have the upper hand because they would have easier access to technological development. Whereas liberal societies are always concerned with limiting technology, limiting technological innovation, limiting technological development would fall behind. And I think we already see lots of signs of this, and they are worrisome if you are a liberal. Uh, so the same conflict we saw in the case of religion is now being repeated in the case of technology in a way is much more dramatic because I guess you could have a religion, uh, society without religion, some level of spiritual depth, of altruism, uh, of um, uh, living in eternity rather than living in the moment. All that was a great loss, I think, when religion disappeared, particularly from European societies, but at least they could still compete with other societies. But now, if liberalism is incompatible with technology, it starts to become difficult to imagine how liberalism can actually survive, let us say, against China, that doesn't have uh, any of those problems with technology that we've just been talking about. Uh, and then you start to suspect, you know, when, it, when, you, when you think about what Tyler Cohen or Peter Thiel have been talking about, the idea of a great stagnation, you actually have to start wondering whether the root cause of that is not the fact that liberalism for the past 50, 60 years has really become the dominant overriding ideology. There's nothing else in our societies. And from the moment that happened, technology essentially uh, started to stagnate. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think uh, there's obviously a very close relationship between, between the two things. And so if we want to create space for technology, uh, perhaps we will have to develop a different kind of society, no longer a liberal society. And, and this is a question that I think is very strongly felt in America today, particularly in California, and not strongly felt in Europe. So it's another case where I see really grounds for optimism about America. America is really struggling with this. Um, Whereas in China, um, technology is accepted as a form of national greatness, um, but the problems with technology are not discussed. And in Europe, uh, I think we're almost on the cusp of accepting that we're not going to have any more technological revolutions because they are essentially, just as communist revolutions are incompatible with liberalism, I think in Europe we're almost at the point of, of, of accepting and proclaiming that technological revolutions are incompatible with liberalism as well. You know, Peter Thiel says it's the 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 the, the centralizing view of technology is, is AI, uh, and 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 the decentralizing view or technology is is uh, cryptocurrency, and that there are mm -hmm. technologies that are you know encouraging us towards centralization and ones that are encouraging us towards decentralization, and that this is sort of the great sort of debate or sort of battle. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. The extent that technology leads us to a more decentralized future, it might lead us to a more liberal future in the sense of in the sense of true freedom, in the sense of sort of actualized libertarianism. Right. Well, yeah, I, 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 I agree with that view in, in general terms. I think, uh, well, we do have the question of AI and, and its compatibility with, with human freedom in China being, being raised. And then, of course, of course, the question with crypto is, is, is also very interesting. I think you already see uh, that uh, crypto is really developing an alternative form of, of state uh, that the modern state would be replaced by something else. 
that was not very clear with Bitcoin, but I think it's already pretty clear with Ethereum that um, the state represented by courts, uh, by the administrative state, can potentially be replaced by smart contracts and other forms uh, of um, Ethereum-based uh, applications. Then the question will be, I think, if we do go down this path, the question will be, at some point, the state as it exists today is going to fight back. And it still has essentially the instruments to fight back because it still has the monopoly of violence or physical force. Uh, and in the end, we all know that um, if, if you have your all your financial assets in crypto, uh, they are safe to some extent. But if someone uh, kidnaps you and tortures you to, to get your key, that can still be done. People can still be put in jail. Uh, so I think it's not obvious to me, uh, as it is to, to some people in the crypto world, uh, that the story of crypto in the next few decades is going to be a peaceful one. It seems uh, uh, obvious that there's potential here for a kind of a world-shaping, world-defining clash between crypto and the traditional state. And probably some people are already thinking about ways in which not just the administrative state, courts, the law, can be incorporated in crypto, but also how potentially access to to physical force and physical violence could be uh, incorporated in, into into crypto platforms. Um, but these are all very delicate questions and very difficult questions for the future. So even though on the face of it, there is some possibilities for human freedom that are incorporated in the crypto world and, and, and in the basic idea of a decentralized platform, of a radically decentralized platform, which I think is, is what defines uh, crypto as a political idea. I think that's true for the time being, but obviously we're reaching a point where things are going to become more serious uh, and where we are going to have... Um, a sort of a defining clash for where power really lies. And until now, I think the traditional state still had the upper hand, even in a clash between Google and, and the traditional state. The traditional state still had the upper hand, still has the upper hand with Bitcoin, but we'll see whether that continues uh, for the foreseeable future or not. But one can imagine uh, one of those defining clashes like we had in the past, a kind of a uh, French Revolution redux, where two distinct sources of political power uh, have to decide among themselves uh, which one will will survive and which one cannot survive. Do you suggest that we sort of lean into postmodernism, but just make it make it work, and that real way to go back to you know modernity, modernity as we once knew it? Uh, right. Uh, well, postmodernity was was never really explored in all its possibilities. And there was a kind of a, a negative side to it where, you know, this denial of reality uh, was almost a, a form of madness. Um, but the idea of simulation is a different one. It's not that you deny reality in your mind. Uh, it's that, in fact, you build an alternative form of reality and that in many respects is going to be superior to the real one and that incorporates the real one and makes it disappear. So these are fundamentally different projects. Um, so when sometimes people criticize the idea of post-truth, um, they have in mind a form of post-truth that is really a kind of madness where you ignore reality, but reality continues outside your mind. But that's not what I am suggesting here. What I am suggesting here is, is, is more similar to 
the creation of an imaginary world, let's say like Westworld, that is more complete, more complex uh, than the real world and eventually ends up replacing it. That form of postmodernity, I think, is, is, is defensible, not to say inevitable. I think it's, it's the way we're going, whether, whether people like it or not. There's this view, uh, 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 a friend who says, um, liberalism has no constituency anymore. It's either the only constituencies that, that work are either communism, there's a wokeism, you know, nationalism, populism, or populist nationalism, uh, Christianity, and right. Islam. Right. Liberalism is certainly in trouble. Um, some of its promises were, were just not fulfilled. You know, if you read those authors, we started at the beginning of our conversation John Stuart Mill, John Locke, and the descriptions they give of a liberal society. It was supposed to be a society where you could talk about everything, where you could believe in everything, where you could do whatever you wanted. This, this idea of, of radical freedom, particularly at the level of ideas, the marketplace of ideas, uh, where everything could be talked about and everything could be defended, and people that had eccentric, unusual opinions would actually be celebrated. I mean, you read those things now and you just realize, my God, this was uh, this is a pie in the sky. It's just not delivered at all. And that liberal societies end up being quite restrictive uh, in the range of opinions that they allow. Uh, so I think, obviously, uh, some of the, of the things we took for granted have to be rethought when, once, once we realize this. In some respects, uh, liberal societies give, give less room for, for free thinking than other kinds of societies. It is true that you're safe. They have delivered at the level of safety, but they had not delivered at the level of free inquiry and free thinking and free thought, which, by the way, if you read the original authors, the original theories, the original manifestos, this was supposed to be more important than the safety. You're supposed to be a liberal in the 18th century if you really believed in free thinking if you really believe that you're going to have a society where people have open minds, more open than they've ever been. Uh, and this has just become very difficult to believe because liberal societies have become very restrictive, based on a high level of conformity, uh, where everything is decided before you can actually make a decision, uh, where everything is, is, is decided by the courts because there's always kind of a mechanism to make decisions on abortion, on, 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 on property, on uh, on, on politics, um, those decisions are, 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 are there even before people start to live. So there's a sense in which uh, the, the, the promises have not been fulfilled. And, and in that sense, yes, uh, liberalism has lost its consistency. And perhaps even more damaging, I think it has lost the support of uh, most creative, enterprising individuals in society. Uh, which for the past two, three centuries, uh, they were the liberals uh, hoping for a society where they would have room and freedom to, to become themselves. And I think these days this is becoming difficult and many of these people are turning into other projects and other possibilities. Um, that's, that's true in China. Uh, that's true in Iran. As I described in my, in my first book, uh, one of the kind of surprises that I that I had in Iran talking to young, ambitious, creative people was they hated the regime, the theocratic regime in Iran, but they actually thought that the regimes in the West were similar to the regime in Iran, that they were also very dogmatic, and so they were looking for something else. It's very exciting, the current moment, uh, where most creative people seem to be looking for new possibilities. We do have 
to help them along, especially younger people, in the sense of there's the danger that they'll be attracted by ideologies that are quite dangerous to, to human freedom and to human dignity. Forms of authoritarianism, perhaps old forms of authoritarianism or new forms of authoritarianism. Uh, I try in the book at least to offer a different possibility, and it's not supposed to be the only one. I think we are at a moment where many different political possibilities can be explored, and we shouldn't just go for the first one that, that attracts us. Totally. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Europe. Mm-hmm. You were saying earlier that there are some things to be concerned about, particularly in, in the UK. Uh, elucidate or unpack what, what those things are. In Europe, uh, let us let us start with with continental Europe. Um, I think we have to be concerned about the extent to which the, the the current way of life in Europe can be preserved indefinitely or even for 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 a long period. In the news this week, we have a number of examples of how political instability is now reaching the the borders of Europe. We used to talk about how political instability was present on Europe's borders, and we meant Iraq, we meant Syria, which in the end are actually not that near to, to, to Europe. But now, this week in particular, we are discussing political instability in Belarus, in the city of Brest, which is just a half a kilometer, a few hundred meters from the Polish border. And we're discussing instability in the Eastern Mediterranean, in the Greek islands, in the island of Rhodes, uh, potentially with with, with the possibility of a military conflict between Greece and Turkey. So already inside Europe's borders. It's almost as if the siege has been uh, uh, tightened uh, and it's now really almost present inside our borders. Uh, and Europe continues to show a radical inability to face these challenges and to react to them. doesn't have a unified foreign policy doesn't have a unified army, continues to rely on the United States for its protection, doesn't have the ability to be respected by other actors. Uh, when it expresses displeasure about this or that, it's increasingly the case that other actors don't take this very seriously. So I am worried about this, and I think uh, we all should be Europeans. There's a geopolitical weakness, frailty to Europe uh, today, uh, that doesn't bode well for the future. Uh, and then, second element, uh, more cultural, less geopolitical. Uh, I think Europe uh, is increasingly turned towards the past. And I sometimes think this image of Europe as a museum is not a bad one. Uh, I don't think Europe is a museum in the sense of being existing only for the sake of tourists and its cities becoming tourist destinations, which is sometimes what do you mean when you say that Europe is a museum? I think Europe is a museum in the sense that it's turned towards its own traditions and trying to create a world where the best of those traditions is present and the worst uh, has been eliminated. So that Europe today is almost like a retrospective of the best of the European tradition of the past 500 years. There's uh, the love of science, which was really the best of of Europe's um, experience. Uh, And it's represented in the European Union at the highest level. A huge chunk of the European budget goes to science and research in a way that is unthinkable in the United States that so much public money could be spent on it. Then you have cosmopolitanism and the love of different cultures, which was, um, of course, part of the European tradition for centuries. And it's still represented today at the highest level as well. Uh, There is a certain openness uh, to cultural exchange, 
spending money on that, spending money sending our students abroad uh, within Europe, but also outside Europe, establishing links with other parts of the world. Uh, then you have the element of techno technocratic governance. Uh, this was also part of the European tradition, even before democracy. The idea of enlightened despotism, uh, having experts at the highest level, highest level of government, and it's still very much represented by the European Union, where technocracy rules, and in some respects has a higher legitimacy to rule than even democracy. So you have this interesting situation where uh, the best of the European past has been preserved at the same time as the worst demons of the European past, totalitarianism, racism, and so on, are discarded. And they are discarded in, in, in the European Union as well, as forms of nationalism, protectionism. So you could think about the European Union as a museum in the sense that you collect the best art pieces and you discard the worst, put them in storage or discard them entirely, right? And you put the best art pieces on show. And, and that's what the European does with the European tradition. Now, I find this remarkable and very attractive. Particularly, it creates a place where it's really very pleasant and interesting to live. But um, in a world where every other society is turned aggressively towards the future, exploring other possibilities and exploring other worlds and exploring the technology through which these new worlds can be created, I think it's an untenable position for Europe to, to remain like this uh, because the societies that are turned towards the past uh, end up uh, losing ground uh, and being overcome sooner or later. So the situation in Europe today is not so different from, let us say, uh, uh, Austria in the, in the first half of the 19th century. A, a very nice place to live, uh, perhaps uh, everyone with means uh, and, and, with, uh, and with a brain would have loved to live in Vienna in the first half of the 19th century, but everyone already sensed that the Habsburg Empire was condemned to disappear um, because it was simply unable to create new possibilities. And other states in Europe, uh, Prussia, France, uh, Great Britain, uh, were turned towards the future. So I worried about, about this in Europe. I worry about the possibilities that the way of life we have now, admirable as it is, I worry that it it can't be preserved over the long run unless we introduce a new spirit of adventure and innovation. The United Kingdom, I think, is, 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 is not in a fundamentally different situation. I think of the United Kingdom as being still part of the European world, and I don't think Brexit uh, is going to change that. How, how do you make sense of the immigration challenges in, in Europe um, and the opportunities, and how do you think it plays out? I don't, I don't, as opposed to many conservatives in the UK or, or, or the US, I, I don't think this is a threat. I think it would actually be an opportunity. We're just talking about a society that is more attuned to the movement of history and, and to the creation of something new could benefit from having high levels of immigration. I think some of the dynamism in European society is coming from immigrants. I fear that those times are over. Uh, every European society is becoming more close to immigration, more suspicious of it more suspicious of the immigrant communities in, inside uh, its own societies. Uh, so I have a different view. I don't see it as a threat at all. I am disappointed uh, when I see this argument that uh, European societies are losing their, their identity through immigration. Uh, I never see it as a threat to the European way of life. Um, 
on the contrary, you know, in a city like Brussels, where I lived for a couple of years, I, I, I don't see that, that the immigrants in, in Brussels are a threat in any way. I just wish that Belgians, let us say, white, white, the white population in, 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 in Brussels, sometimes not just Belgian because people come from all over Europe to live and work in the European institutions, uh, I, I wish they would uh, be more aware of the immigrant communities uh, visiting the, uh, the immigrant neighborhoods that are very segregated. And that would make for uh, for a better society in in Belgium, but also in in other parts of Europe. Uh, the UK, in this respect, is better, more connected to its immigrant communities and benefiting more from it. Um, but no, I don't. Uh, I don't take seriously the idea that this is the the biggest threat to Europe. Uh, again, I think to repeat, I think the, the biggest threats are power coming from outside its borders. Uh, it could be Russia, could be Turkey, could be could be China. I think China is is really the the biggest threat uh, to Europe's survival as a sovereign entity uh, and its own cultural conservatism. And if anything, I think immigration could shake up things in terms of this of this cultural conservatism that has become too rigid. Totally. Talk, talk about how the U.S. election uh, affects all this. The 2020 election about Biden versus Trump. How do the outcomes? You know, sort of change what we've been talking about, whether it relates to America, whether it relates to Europe, whether it relates to China. How do you see it playing out? Right. Well, I think the paradox about this election that has been noted by many people is that we, we could all agree that America is, is in the grip of, of, of um, uh, dramatic changes. And we talked about it. And uh, perhaps some people would try to argue uh, that it isn't. But I think that would be a difficult, difficult argument to make. Uh, and, you know, the paradox is that uh, Biden doesn't really represent this. Biden represents in in many ways a return to the past, a return, in effect, to to a kind of politics that uh, takes us by the kind of retail politics and uh, bipartisan politics um, of of the sixties, of the seventies. Uh, so it's quite uh, remarkable, and I, I I can't quite wrap my mind around it. It's quite remarkable that in a moment of such dramatic change, uh, we end up with a presidential candidate that represents the opposite. Now we'll have to wait and to see how this paradox is resolved. There are different possibilities. To try to enumerate some of them. It could be the case that Biden ends up being a kind of a presidential figurehead and uh, his administration uh, takes uh, a a revolutionary turn of some kind, uh, perhaps led by his vice president, uh, uh, although the choice was not surprising either, perhaps led by the the left wing of the Democratic Party. Um, uh, That's not impossible. Could happen to some extent. Uh, We'll have to see the cabinet, but one could have a more radical form of politics in some areas. Um, also, in some cases, could be driven by events as they develop. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that we simply end up having an interregnum uh, for years uh, where the Trump's legacy is uh, eliminated uh, and, in fact, the system and the political culture is readying itself for new changes and new possibilities that will come in 2024. I think this is a very plausible possibility. After all, historical change doesn't need to happen in a kind of incessant uh, way. There are many times pauses that actually prepare more radical changes in the near future. 
So I find it uh, entirely possible that, uh, in fact, one could see Biden as a, a president that uh, helps prepare the ground both for more dramatic changes in the Democratic Party, where the far left finally manages um, to um, acquire um, decisive power. And also in, in the Republican Party, uh, you end up having uh, someone that is as radical as Trump uh, in the approach, uh, but perhaps more competent and more driven than Trump. Uh, and so 2024 could really end up being the moment where many of the things we've been talking about uh, materialize themselves and, and you have a, a much more significant election. Uh, there may be other possibilities beyond these two, but uh, for the time being, I think the interesting thing really is that uh, uh, we ended up with a candidate that doesn't seem to represent the, the historical moment uh, as it's... Uh, as it's um, obvious to all of us today. Do you find the parallels to Nixon um, and, and, and just the sort of that, that time period uh, compelling? You know, is, is there a silent majority uh, a, a, anymore? How do you think about it? I'm kind of assuming, I just realized that in my previous answer, I'm kind of assuming that Biden will win <laughs> because <laughs> there was, there was an, a, a third possibility of how the, 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 move, the revolutionary moment would be preserved, which would be for Trump to win. And then truly would have a revolutionary moment because I think a second term of Trump would uh, be uh, uh, much more agitated than the first. Uh, that's obvious. Uh, so that's a third possibility that it didn't even occur to me because I'm so convinced uh, that, that Biden will win. But, you know, remember that he will win because of, uh, of COVID uh, fundamentally, I think. So even though 1968 could, could, could offer some possibilities for Trump uh, and if he ends up winning... You know, we've, we've seen last week and a couple of weeks ago some some people predicting uh, that Trump still has about thirty percent chance of winning, which is not bad, and, and in particular thirty percent chance at a time where uh, his odds are certainly going to improve a little bit uh, because COVID will, will 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 continue to to improve. It's it's been improving for a couple of weeks already. Uh, number of cases and, and number of deaths, uh, and where the economy could also uh, recover. Uh, so thirty uh, percent right now is not that bad, uh, and if Trump ends up winning, I would give it less than a thirty percent chance. But if he ends up winning, it would certainly be because of the law and order question, uh, because right now it seems obvious that uh, what is being represented in the mainstream media is not what is happening in American cities. There's a, there's a growth in the crime statistics, and there's a level of public disorder. There's a number of, uh, uh, of, of of businesses that have suffered from that and uh, small businesses that have suffered from that. And these things are certainly being talked about by regular people and on social media. And so we may certainly be underplaying the role that this will end up playing, that many people might look at the two candidates uh, and uh, they will have to ask the question, well, on the one hand, this elements of public disorder happen under a Trump presidency, but on the other hand, do we really trust Biden to, and do we really trust the left establishment of the party and of uh, American media to solve these problems? Uh, and I wrote a piece recently arguing that actually probably the median voter would incline to think that even though Trump was not very effective at pre preventing these developments, uh, that Biden would be worse. 
and that that's certainly possible. That's certainly a possibility that they'll end up uh, could end up deciding the election. Uh, it's very difficult in America today to make these uh, judgments because there's such a distance between what is being represented in the media, particularly the large media organizations, and what is happening on the ground. So we may all be uh, deceived to some extent about uh, about public feeling and public sentiment around many of these issues. Totally. What are the other sort of turning points that you foresee in the next couple of years or the things that you're really looking forward to is like, what are, mm-hmm. what's mm-hmm. going to help you answer some of your questions going forward? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, I'm fundamentally interested and, and kind of can't wait uh, to see how some of the changes we've been talking about are going to continue either under a Biden presidency. And I'm looking forward to seeing so many of the people that thought all these changes were due to Trump uh, coming slowly to the realization that they're not and that they're more structural about America's role in the world, uh, about China's rise, about a certain distance between Europe and America, that uh, these things were not due to Trump, but they are more fundamental. So I'll be very interested in following that very closely. Um, Of course, China. I think uh, China-U.S. relation is going to be the big question for the coming years. Uh, it seems obvious that things will become more tense in in all kinds of areas. Uh, the Trump administration has been uh, quite, uh, let's say, quite imprudent in the way it has dealt with China. Um, I think it has um, uh, underestimated China's ability to respond. And China has not responded quickly, but it will eventually respond because certainly the majority view in Beijing is that um, the U.S. is making it impossible for China to continue to rise and to grow. And when an obstacle is placed in the way of a country, particularly a country like China that is organized around this goal of national rejuvenation, and if uh, an immovable obstacle is placed in its way, it will react sooner or later. And I think the view in Washington, not just in the Trump administration, but this will be shared by the establishment as a whole and even by Democrats, is that China doesn't really have any way to respond. Uh, And this uh, both underestimates China's um, powers, but also I think misjudges and misreads the situation because China does not have to respond in a symmetric way. So if uh, the United States makes it impossible for every large Chinese company to become a global company, which is part of the national strategy to to make this happen. Um, China's response is not going to be against uh, equivalent American companies necessarily. China's response could take place in a completely different area. It could take place in the military area in the South China Sea or in Taiwan. They will want to respond, but they don't necessarily want to respond with the same kind of move uh, that they see coming from Washington. So we're entering a very dangerous period in in the relations between the two countries. Um, I think uh, Beijing is waiting a little bit for the election, and that's why there hasn't been any response. But if we have a Biden administration that is as committed as the Trump administration to um, a new kind of uh, great power confrontation with China, there will be a response and we'll have to uh, to see what happens. Uh, I don't think we are in a new Cold War. If by Cold War we mean an existential conflict where only one side can survive, I think we're still not there. But we could enter a Cold War. Uh, we could enter a conflict where both sides understand that uh, they are 
committed to the destruction of the other uh, also in order to survive. What do you think, you know, 10 years from now, the legacy of, of COVID will be? How will we interpret th- this time period? <laughs> what it's, it's entirely possible that um, the legacy will not be visible. Uh, I suspect that what, that's what happens many times in history that a particular event ends up having consequences, but the consequences are later in history books and historical perception attributed to something else or attributed to the movement of history itself. And the connection, the causal link with the event is lost Um, because the causal link is never as easy to see as, let us say, in in a movie or in a story, in a novel. So it's possible, let us say. I suspect if I had to pick one consequence of COVID, it would have to be uh, a renewed sense of the possibilities of politics and collective power. Because I think what we learned from COVID was nothing about viruses or about the environment or about climate change. It was really about the incredible possibilities of political power and collective power. If you think about it, you know, we, we put our economies on hold. We organized our societies for a period of months around one single goal, and everything else was put on hold. Everything else was put on pause. We sacrificed uh, unimaginable amounts of economic prosperity uh, and individual fulfillment for the sake of one single goal, which, by the way, was not even the survival of the species. This was not a, a threat, let us say, a meteorite, a giant meteorite or an alien invasion. This was not a threat that would endanger the species, but we still did that. Uh, and that was really surprising, I think. It did not happen with the Spanish flu in 1918. Rather surprising. And if you're someone who is committed to political power, the possibilities of political power, if you are a revolutionary, you probably were fascinated and, and very interested in the sense that you started to think, well, if this is possible, then man- many things I thought were not possible are actually possible. It's interesting that the left, for so many decades, was trying to do something of this sort, and it was completely unable, uh, unable to do it. Uh, and uh, a virus came, comes along and was able to do that, was able to reorganize societies for the sake of a single purpose. Uh, so I suspect um, human beings, uh, we, we will learn from the virus in the sense of realizing that actually it's possible to organize societies around a single goal and to... To, to bring it about because we were able in many parts of the world to actually uh, reduce the, the infections and the deaths so that the possibilities of political power and the possibilities of collective power are much greater than we thought. Now, it's possible to say if this was done for the sake of fighting a pandemic, then it can be done in order to fight climate change or it can be done to bring about a, a more equal society. It can be done to end racism. You know, you just pick your goal. Many of them, on the face of it, may actually be more valuable goals than stopping a relatively controllable pandemic in the sense that uh, we've had worse, more deadly strains of viruses in the past. So a goal like climate change, many people would think is a more valuable one. A goal like eliminating racism, you already saw people in the United States saying that it was more important to eliminate racism than to eliminate COVID-19. And so I think the next few years, you're going to see a lot of that. You're going to see a lot of virus envy and virus imitation, virus emulation that 
potentially social movements will try to replicate what was done with the lockdowns and what was done with uh, the anti-pandemic uh, uh, movement. And then, as I was saying at the beginning of my answer, it's possible, let us say, if we have a period of 10, 20 years of revolutionary fervor, of collective power, of political power, maybe 100 years from now, historians won't be able to guess that the real cause was COVID-19. Maybe they will, you know, perhaps the, the real cause of the French Revolution was a pandemic 20 years earlier. I haven't checked. That made people aware that it was possible to exercise power in an effective way. And uh, it's not impossible, not impossible that you will have this kind of consequence. Now, I don't know if this will be the consequence. seems to be the most plausible candidate for the long-term effect of COVID. I don't see anything that comes close to it, uh, a sort of a rebirth of a, of a revolutionary spirit. But I also suspect that uh, it won't be so obvious, the link between those consequences and, uh, and the pandemic itself. What would it take for America to become Americans to become patriotic again? They are. I mean, they are. Uh, but for we, we, they, is this perhaps the least you know patriotic July Fourth you know Americans right. have overseen? Or what would it take to sort of renew a patriotism? Right. That's a, that, 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 that's a good question. I you know. I, I I think Americans are still more patriotic than than, than Western Europeans, and you see that. When, when you ask Americans whether they'd be willing to die for their country, uh, you get uh, much, much higher percentages in America than you get in all of Western Europe. And in fact, to find uh, similar figures in Europe, you have to go to Turkey and, and some uh, Eastern European countries that have only recently become independent over, over the, the, the last th three decades. So the numbers in America for, for this kind of, of question and answer are still remarkable. But Perhaps the kind of patriotism that you're talking about, where the whole country comes together, perhaps that kind of patriotism is just not going to come back because the fragmentation and the diversity of American society is, is now uh, much deeper. And, you know, in previous answers and uh, in this conversation, we've talked about some of those reasons, uh, and they're not all bad. The society is trying to explore many different possibilities, and if the spectrum the range of those possibilities has been expanded, as I think it has been dramatically in the United States, then it's difficult for society to come together uh, under uh, one idea. And that might not necessarily be a bad thing. But in the book, I compare American society today to a kind of giant television, where if you, if you, if you, go, if you, if you zap through the channels, you find the most diverse and incongruous uh, visions uh, and they are held together in the same in, in the same platform but they couldn't be more different in one channel there's a televangelist in the other channel there's a porn movie in the other channel there's a children's show in the other channel a sports competition and in a way it's almost like american society has absorbed this television ideal uh, which is also present in the internet um I think uh, uh, the internet is, is, is takes television to its final conclusion. Uh, it's also present in the internet, and it's become a model for American society, this uh, radical diversity, this exploration of different content. And, and it's done in a kind of incessant way. It's never enough. You need, you need something new all the time. So patriotism of the old kind is going to be difficult if this is the model. But in Europe, is there the same sort of anti-patriotism or sort of like the belief that, you know, their individual country is sort of the source of, 
of all problems in the same way that we have sort of that, that strain here? In Europe, it's, it's, it's always about the past, uh, right? So in Europe, uh, we talked about it already. Patriotism has been left out of the museum because uh, whoever made the judgment, the, the museum curator, uh, concluded that patriotism was not uh, a, a, a good representative of the European tradition. Uh, patriotism has led to wars, has led to imperial projects, has led to colonial empires. And so it was better left out of the museum, and therefore it's not really represented or promoted by, let us say, the European Union institutions, which represent rather the opposite. And in Western Europe in particular, uh, patriotism of that kind is very suspect and um, not well regarded, uh, and people would hesitate to subscribe to any variety of it. I want to close by saying uh, just a few thinkers and asking where, where you disagree with them or have sort of a difference of, a, of opinion with them. Mm -hmm. the, the, the first one is, uh, is Peter Thiel. Uh, a great thinker. Uh, I've met him a few times, and you know the thing about about Peter Thiel is that he's um, uh, is a is a, is a guy completely in love with with ideas and and thinking. And um, I saw someone the other day say that uh, it's um, really a roller coaster talking to him, um, and and it is, uh, and that, that surprised me before meeting him. Is um, uh, intense. I mean, intellectually intense, and uh, for a few hours, you just kind of become two brains talking, and everything else disappears. But uh, at the same time, you know, he's a guy who was able to make a, a, a few billion dollars, so he has a sense for the real world. And uh, we should perhaps um, that's that's where our conversation started today. We should we should um, perhaps. Um, come up with, with different ideals of what a thinker is because a thinker has to be rooted in the real world. And you know, Till is a good example of that. Are, are there places where you have uh, just different, uh, you just fundamentally disagree? Uh, well, I don't know. I remember talking to him about China. He, he was very skeptical about China's possibilities. Uh, I disagreed with him on that. I don't know if he's changed his mind now with COVID where uh, China really, I think, put together a, a very effective response. Uh, which is not different, not difficult, not not easy in a society like China, so large and so complex as we were seeing in the U.S. It's not easy to respond to a to a pandemic in China or the U.S. It's relatively easy in 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 New Zealand uh, or Switzerland. Uh, so I think China put together a very effective response, and I wonder whether Peter Thiel has a better appreciation for 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 the um, let us say the effectiveness of of the Chinese state and 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 the abilities of uh, of, of the Chinese economy to um, to respond to, particularly to natural challenges, but also in terms of uh, innovation, because this also involved the level of innovation and quick response. How, how about uh, Mark Andreessen? Any uh, differences of opinion? Well, I'm 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 always very interested in in his essays, which he writes. Uh, you should write them more often. Uh, the latest essay. Uh, I think my my main question and my main doubt and perhaps disagreement was, uh, I mean, in the end, uh, this cannot just be about going out and building or inventing stuff. Um, this has to be a much more radical project of social and political transformation. Uh, so I don't think the individual entrepreneur is a decisive thing here, that societies have to change as a whole. 
and technology is a social project. So when he says, let us build, you know, I would be inclined to find uh, another word um, because this is not about building. This is sort of about, about transforming society. Totally. Uh, how about Antonio Garcia Martinez? Uh, I, I, I know him less well. I'm, I'm hoping to have a, a debate with him uh, soon. We've been trying to arrange it, uh, but I certainly love the book. And I love the way he, I mean, we talked about this earlier. Uh, you, you need uh, to be in love with technology, but also simultaneously skeptical about some of its consequences. And I actually don't know anyone better than Antonio at doing this. Um, and when I, when I read the book, I was kind of uh, wondering, is this, kind, is, is this really an insider in Silicon Valley? Because he seems so able to step outside of it when necessary. So that's the that's the main thing that I admire about him. How about uh, the likes of uh, of you know Steven Pinker or Sam Harris? Uh, I mean, less enthusiastic yeah. than about the name so far. Uh, I actually don't know them personally, and I think uh, uh, you, you know this. Their their the, their their ideas are seem to me more conventional. They seem still to to subscribe to this idea of a predictable path of progress. Uh, I've been defending the exact opposite throughout this whole podcast. So you're not going to be surprised that I find this sort of uh, unexciting. Uh, their, their writings m- most often doesn't mean that here and there you can find something quite interesting or you can't learn. But, uh, but I find the general trend of, of their thinking and writing rather unexciting. Would you put Tyler Cowen in that bucket or, or how about Tyler? Well, Tyler, the thing Tyler has that no one else has, uh, well, first, he has incredible generosity of spirit. Uh, I, I just have never seen anyone like that so willing to, um, to to help other people succeed, and he seems genuinely happy to be able to do that. That's just so uncommon. And second, you know, as many people have remarked, is um, I mean, he's the ultimate polymath. Uh, he can he can he can talk intelligently about anything, every everything. And anything, uh, that's really quite remarkable, uh, and and a model in that respect. And we need people like him to provide the links between different areas of knowledge. Uh, so few, so few economists uh, that are able to really be fascinated and interested in culture. And I think Tyler is going to have a role when we write. Uh, intellectual histories and cultural histories of our time, uh, because. Uh, there's really no one else that was able to bring together economics and culture in the way he has done since the very beginning of his career. He almost seems to have regarded this as a personal calling. Who else do you think is going to be in that short list of, of thinkers and, and writers that we, you know, many years from now look back to uh, in, in the same way you just described Tyler? Right. Um, well, along the same lines that I was talking about uh, in, in respect to Tyler, I don't think there's anyone else. Uh, now, this is a very difficult question to respond immediately. I would, I would need to sit down and think for quite a while because, you know, there's, there's people who are interested in, but it's just that the name doesn't occur immediately. If you open your iPad and see the books, you, you see them there. Um, I think there's, there's many interesting thinkers in, in America today, a little less in Europe. There's... Uh, Quite a number of, of, of interesting people in, in, in China. There's quite a number of interesting people in, in India. I'm quite fascinated, particularly by the political debate in India, but also the cultural debate. Great novelists coming from India. So I, I would, you know, I would recommend 
people listening to this, if they could subscribe to a couple of Indian magazines and follow the intellectual debates there. Uh, they are deep, they are important, uh, they are free of some of the presuppositions that we have in the West. So I would highly recommend that. Is there someone who is really changing the way we think about society and politics and history together with these great thinkers that I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation? I really don't think so. Perhaps, you know, he's already alive, but uh, it's very difficult to come up with a, a kind of an intellectual giant that is walking among us. Bruno, that's a perfect place to, to wrap. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My guest today is with Bruno Massange, and the book is History Has Begun. Bruno, thank you for coming on. Have a good one. Bye, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.